Well, hey, um, Jacqueline's going to come up and speak again. And this is the last this is the last session from Jacqueline. Everybody say, Um, But hey, you guys help me welcome Jacqueline to the stage. Oh, no, that is. What is that? Oh, yeah, excellent. All right. Well, okay, guys. Yesterday, we talked about, we posited a working definition of nerdiness. And we talked about how nerdiness plays out in our relationships. So today, I'm going to refine that definition a little bit. And we're going to talk about how nerdiness affects all of our life. Because I'm going to make the argument that geeking out is essential to life. So, first of all, we're going to refine our definition a little bit more. We defined nerdiness, we, I'm using the pastoral, we, I defined nerdiness as enthusiastic autotelic enjoyment yesterday. And today I'd like to refine that a little bit because I'd like to make the argument that everybody nerds. Maybe not everyone is a nerd, but everyone nerds. I've got a formula for you if uh, you get that up there. Because if nerdiness is enthusiastic autotelic enjoyment, then everybody nerds at some point because enthusiastic autotelic enjoyment, that's just fun. That's what it is. Everyone experiences fun. Nerds just do so with a higher degree of focus and consistency. Everyone has fun on occasion. Remember the red wall Harry Potter dichotomy I talked about last uh, night? So I had fun reading Harry Potter, but the fun I had with red wall was much more focused and much more consistent. Nerdiness is what happens when we adopt fun as our posture, when enthusiastic autotelic enjoyment is a practiced habit and not just a temporary activity. And it's that posture of fun that is nerdiness that I think is a life essential. So to get into that a little bit more, let's talk about how fun happens. Because fun is an odd, it's an odd phenomenon. It happens when we're least expecting it, but then it also seems to leak out of moments that should be fun. One of the least fun times I've ever had was at the Texas State Fair a few years ago because I made the mistake of being a college ministry assistant and I signed up for hurting a bunch of college children through the Texas State Fair at like nine o'clock on Saturday night and it was utterly miserable. On the other hand, some of the most fun I've ever had was on a mission trip in South Texas where we literally spent a week squeegeeing bat guano out of an unair conditioned worship space in South Texas. And we had an amazing time. and It was a ton of fun. So fun doesn't always happen the way we expect. So in order to talk about what it is, let's talk about how it happens. I would argue that fun happens in what I'm calling a two-beat rhythm. It happens in two different modes. It comes in two different flavors, giving and receiving. So the first beat of that rhythm, I'm calling the giving beat, the giving mode. And I'm drawing again from our friend Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi and his research into optimal experience. They did, he and his team did extensive research over many years across vastly different demographics, socioeconomically, racially, internationally, finding out talking to people, what moments in their lives were the most fun? When did they experience the most exhilarating, exciting, satisfying moments of their life? And what they discovered was, contrary to what we usually believe, the best moments in our lives are not the passive, receptive, relaxing times. The best moments usually occur when a person's body or mind is stretched to its limits in a voluntary effort to accomplish something difficult and worthwhile. 
So gaming is a really great example of this. When you're really into a video game or you're really into a board game and you're focusing entirely on it and it's got your full attention and you feel like you've got uh, just the amount of control you need over the situation you're dealing with and you have an immense sense of achievement and accomplishment when you accomplish your goals. That is what Csikszentmihalyi calls flow. And that's what I'm calling the giving mode of fun. Examples that he discovered in his research were as varied as practicing meditation, riding motorcycles in a motorcycle gang, extreme swimming, rock climbing. You see it with kids building sandcastles at the beach. What they're doing is a ton of work. They're spending all day trying to construct a building out of sand in the hot sun. And they're having an amazing amount of fun doing it. That's giving fun. That's flow. Another example would be your highest score in the latest game you played. That's giving fun. Giving fun is what happens when we add something to the world around us, whether that's something as complex as a sonata or as simple as the satisfaction of completing a puzzle. That's what I'm calling giving fun. But then there are another category of activities and events that are undeniably fun, but don't qualify as flow or giving fun. I'm calling those receiving fun. These would include things like watching a movie we really love or laughing at a really good joke or eating ice cream because I really love ice cream. These are fun things, but they're not that challenging, focused, hyper-engaged moment. They're much more relaxing. They're receptive. That's receiving fun. That's when you appreciate and joyfully accept as a gift things that other people have put out into the world. So that's how I would argue fun happens. We give, we find fun in giving, we find fun in receiving. We find fun in creating amazing things for others to enjoy. We find fun in accepting as a gift the good things other people have made. A few weeks ago, I experienced something that I think is not just, doesn't just exemplify this rhythm, but symbolizes it very well at a Florence and the Machine concert. Has anyone been to a Florence and the Machine concert? Oh, okay. It's a lot. There's flower crowns involved. It's very intense. She's incredibly interesting. She has a song called Rabbit Heart, and this happened towards the end of the concert. And if you don't know Rabbit Heart, it's a song about sacrifice. And there's a theme in the refrain that says this is a gift. It's a theme that's repeated throughout the song. And as she's there on stage, dancing like crazy, singing beautifully, definitely experiencing what I would describe as giving fun. She's definitely experiencing flow. She's pouring good things out for the audience that has gathered to listen to her. And we are joyfully accepting it in the form of cheering and waving our hands and singing along with her. But at the same time, she's calling us to give back to her. She's calling the audience, sing with me, dance with me, make something beautiful with me. And the audience was pouring it all back to her. And as the song ended, she raised her hands and gathered up everything that the audience was giving her and held it up to herself and said very softly the last line of the song, this is a gift. And then she looked back into the crowd and gave it back to us. And that is a really beautiful picture of what I'm trying to describe, of pouring good things out into the world and joyfully receiving them and then pouring them back into the world and then joyfully receiving them. So if that is how fun works, then I would argue that fun is what we're made for. Fun is, first of all, what we're made to have. We're actually commanded by scripture to engage in the giving mode of fun. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
I don't garden specifically because it's work and it's not work that I enjoy. But for people who enjoy gardening, it is fun. One of the first things that the first God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. I don't draw any conclusions from that. I'm just observing. So we're commanded by scripture to engage in this giving mode of fun and this gauging, engaging in this creative activity in which we bring good things into the world. More importantly, though, we are creative beings made in the image of a creative God and tasked with the task of cultivating creative culture. Genesis 1:26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps along the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves along the earth. What God has been doing up until this point in Genesis is creating. So when he says, I'm going to make something in my image, he's saying, I'm going to make something new that is like me. And if there's one thing we know about God from those first 25 verses of the Bible, it's that God is a creative God. And so he creates humanity and then specifically tasks us with the work of going out and cultivating creation. That dominion over the earth is not the dominion of a totalitarian ruler. It's the dominion of a gardener over a garden. We are like God in our impulse to put good things out into the world. That is the giving mode of fun. It's not just something that we are tasked with as an onerous activity. We find joy and life in it. It is fun for us because it's what we were made to do. This passage, Genesis 1:26 through 28, is often called the cultural mandate. Walsh and Milton, in their book, The Transforming Vision, they make the argument, the primal command to subdue the earth, often called the creation mandate, is a cultural mandate. In all our cultural activities and affairs, that is, in all human actions, artifacts, relationships, and institutions by which we interact with and develop creation, human beings provide evidence of their God-given rule of the earth. All that activity in which we make good things and bring good things into the world, again, whether it's something as complex as building a nonprofit or as simple as going through the motions of an exciting card game, that is giving fun and it's what we were made to do. But we were also made for receiving fun. If there's a gift, there has to be a recipient. If I give you a gift and you turn around and walk away and don't accept it, then I haven't given you a gift. I've just held something out to you that you ignore. So if we are made for giving fun, it's just logical, we are also made for receiving fun. A book exists to be read and therefore implies a reader. A cake exists to be eaten and therefore implies an eater. We're made for giving fun, we're made for receiving fun. And accepting reality as a gift is a core Christian tenet. I'm going to go back to my man Joseph Piper in his book on leisure. Man seems to mistrust everything that is effortless. He can only enjoy with good conscience what he has acquired with toil and trouble. He refuses to receive anything as a gift. Think for a moment how much the Christian understanding of life depends upon the existence of grace. That everything gained and everything claimed follows upon something given and comes after something gratuitous and unearned. That in the beginning there is always a gift. Accepting reality as a gift is core to the Christian faith. Moreover, I would argue, and candidly, I haven't yet found a theologian to back me up on this, so I could be wrong about this, but I think that the rest commanded in all scripture about Sabbath is also related to us being made in the image of God. 
In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, God says, I'm making something that is like me. Okay, what does it mean to be like God? Well, what do we see him doing in the passage? Well, up until this point, he's been creating. He creates humanity. Then he sits, then he gives humanity the call to be created themselves. And then he sits back, folds his hands, and waits expectantly to joyfully receive what they're going to create. Being made in the image of God means work. It does mean cultivation and creation. But being made in God's image also means rest. It means receiving. It means joyfully accepting the good things that the world, that our fellow human beings, and that God has to offer us. Genesis 1, 2, Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, work done, giving fun done. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because in it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Fun is what we're made to have. We're made to have giving fun and receiving fun. It's core to what we are as the human race. But fun is also what we're made to be. God made us for fun. He made us to enthusiastically and autotelically enjoy us. God didn't need humanity. He didn't need reality. He didn't need the universe. The universe is extra. It's cake. God was complete in his glory without us. God was complete and content in community within the Trinity. He made us, he made all of the universe and all of reality to enjoy us and to be enjoyed by us. I'm going to go back to the Westminster Shorter Catechism for this one. The chief end of man, the telos of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We often talk about enjoying God, and it can get a little ethereal and strange, but we're using the same word for God as we do for chocolate cake. We were made to enjoy God enthusiastically and autotelically. God made us to be enjoyed by us and to enjoy us. I actually really appreciate John Piper's tweaking of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. He argues we were made to glorify God by enjoying him forever, that our enjoyment of God glorifies him. God made us for fun. Fun is what we're made to have. Fun is what we're made to be. So what do we do with that? So what? If that, if everything I've said, if that's really how fun works, and that's really what scripture says about this pattern of giving and receiving autotelic, enthusiastic enjoyment. So what? Well, the first thing I would say is that we have a responsibility to create spaces where people can enthusiastically and autotelically enjoy what others have made. We have a responsibility to create space for others to have receiving fun. We live in a Genesis 3 world. Production to give has become, in many cases, production to survive. And our greed, as humans, frequently pushes us to drive others to overproduce so that we can overconsume. We have a responsibility to create space where people can joyfully and thankfully receive the good things that the world and their human, uh, fellow human beings have to offer. I'm going to go back to our friend Joseph Piper, but before I do, he's going to use some words that are going to sound a little strange. I'm going to remind you of his context. He is writing in the early 40s in Germany. He's a German Catholic. Early 40s, just after World War II and just before 
everything that the Soviet Union would be for the second half of the 20th century. He is looking back at all the horrors of Nazism and unbeknownst to him, looking forward to several decades of very difficult life for his country and for Eastern Europe under, under the rule of Soviet Russia. So he says, proletarianism would then mean the limitation of existence and activity to the sphere of the servile arts, whether this limitation were occasioned by lack of property, state compulsion, or spiritual impoverishment. He's saying that proletarianism is when your whole life is narrowed down to just this endless chain of doing things so that you can get other things, of going to a job you hate so you can get money that's not enough so you can buy just enough to survive so that you can make it just another day so you can go back to work to make just enough money. That's what he's talking about. And he says there are three ways in which we find ourselves trapped in that endless cycle of only the servile arts. Number one, being poor. Number two, being trapped in systems over which we have no control, which force us to overproduce so that others may overconsume. Or number three, spiritual impoverishment. And we, we know this is true. In America, where we are comparatively free and comparatively wealthy, it is still totally possible to be so enslaved to workaholicism that you never have the mental, spiritual inner space to joyfully receive what other people have made. Ursula K. Le Guin, not a believer, but she speaks very insightfully on this subject when she says in the businessman's value system, if an act does not produce an immediate tangible profit, it has no justification at all. The only, thus, the only person who has an excuse to read Tolstoy or Tolkien is the English teacher because he gets paid for it. So it's totally possible in a country where we are comparatively free and we are comparatively wealthy to still be trapped in this endless cycle of only having the servile arts take up all of our lives. However, there are socio-political and socio-economic implications to what I'm saying here today. We'll go back to Joseph Piper. He says, by the same token, deproletarianizing would mean, nope, deproletarianizing would mean enlarging the scope of life beyond the confines, confines of merely useful servile work. Widening the sphere of servile work to the advantage of the liberal arts, those are the things we do because we enjoy them inherently, not because we must in order to get another result. And this process can only be carried out by combining three things, by giving the wage earner the opportunity to save and acquire property, by limiting the power of the state, and by overcoming the inner impoverishment of the individual. It's very hard. It's very hard to take autotelic, enthusiastic enjoyment in receiving the good things of this world when you don't know when you're going to eat next, when you're in poverty. And we do have a responsibility to engage in building spaces where people don't have to live like that. It's also very difficult to take autotelic, enthusiastic enjoyment in the good things this world has to offer, joyfully receiving those things, when you're trapped in systems that, again, force you to overproduce so that others can overconsume. And there are places in our country and around the world where that is the case, sometimes because of the state, as Piper mentioned, but also sometimes simply because we're broken people who build broken systems that break other people. And we do have a responsibility to build that space into the world where people can experience what they were made to experience. The second thing I would say is we have a responsibility to create spaces where people can enthusiastically and autotelically enjoy making things. We need to create space for giving fun. Uh, who in here watches Critical Role? Any of y'all have you heard of Critical? Okay, way more people than would listen to Florence and the Machine. Excellent. <laughs> I really enjoy Critical Role. It's one of my favorite TV shows. I watch a lot of it. 
and I really enjoy it. And one thing I realize is that the cast of Critical Role probably has a very different picture of what optimal reality is than I do. Their vision of what is true and good and beautiful is different than mine. Now, there's some significant overlap in the middle, but yes, they think they have different ideas about what is good and best for humanity in the world. But what I am absolutely certain of is that they do go about making their show, both in practice and in product, in a way that they're trying to put good things out into the world that they would probably not use the word bless, but that do bless other people. They want to make something beautiful that makes the world better. And there are some corners of their fandom, guys, where it's never enough. It's incessant. Why did you run this, this set like that? Why is the imagery like that? Why aren't there more characters like this? Why are there so many characters like this? I hate that you said this. Why are they your sponsor? Why do you have them as a guest star? There are corners of their fandom where the only thing this particular part of the fandom has to say to Matt Mercer and his team is this is not good enough. This is not good enough. This is not good enough. And there are many things I pray for the cast of Critical Role. And one of them is that they would not be crushed under the weight of the expectations of their audience. And this doesn't mean, guys, this doesn't mean there isn't space for legitimate critique. It also doesn't mean that there isn't times where we have to sit back and say, I'm really sorry. I love you as a human being. But this thing that you're making is not good and healthy, and it is not adding something wonderful to this world. For example, porn. I'm really sorry. This is a net negative for humanity and for you as a person. However, I do think we have a responsibility as believers and as humans to create space where people are free to create good and wonderful things, secure in the knowledge that if what they're making starts to become toxic on some level, there will be boundaries and loving people to say, hey, I don't think that's what you're really trying to do. Your character said this in your latest short story. Did you mean it for it to come across like that? We need to create space where people can make good, true, and beautiful things, knowing that if they do something that is not healthy, they have people who will call them back to health, but also that it is safe to make those mistakes. We need to create space for people to make beautiful things and engage in giving fun. And last of all, we need to have fun in what my family calls the meantime. The meantime is a term that has become core to the lore of my family. And it came up because of a sermon my grandfather Gerald preached when his wife Elizabeth was spending a decade dying of ALS. The meantime is the space between times. It's a space of waiting, of hanging in there. Sometimes it's a joyful one, like the space between a engagement and a wedding. And sometimes it's a painful one, like the space between a diagnosis and a death. And he preached a sermon while my Grammy was, was passing away over about 10 years called Living in the Meantime. And in it, he gives several points of things that he has learned about living in that time and how we can live faithfully and even joyfully. And one of the points that he says that has stuck with me in particular is that we should discover something to celebrate. When you're living in the meantime, discover something to celebrate. I'm going to quote him verbatim. Jeremiah 29.6 says, Take wives, beget sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and daughters and give your daughters to husbands. Weddings are something to celebrate. And so Jeremiah is saying, while living in the meantime, find something to celebrate. 
That will not be easy. You will have to look for it. You will not find it staring you in the face, but celebrate. You must. One of the many, many notes I, my grandfather, received in the weeks following my wife's death was written by a lady who, to my knowledge, I've never met. But apparently she feels she knew Elizabeth and I very well because the house we lived in for many years was in her neighborhood. The breakfast area had a large bay window and it was shuttered. But we never used the shutters because Elizabeth's favorite place, it was Elizabeth's favorite place to stay and to watch the people. So this lady writes, please accept my deepest sympathy at the passing of your beautiful wife and friend. No person or experience will ever replace those days together. Living in the same neighborhood as you, I frequently walked past your home. At times the lights were on and your warm house was visible as I and my dog walked by. Your love for your wife and her love for you was so visible. Sometimes I had tears seeing you two together so much in love. How lucky you were to have each other with such dedication. And she concludes by saying, thank you for blessing my neighborhood walk. All the ladies saw were two people who had learned to live in the present with each other in such a way as to find something to celebrate. So discover what to celebrate. For through celebrations, you will find life. Fun is not a distraction from real life. Fun is life. We were made for this. We were made to pour good, true, and beautiful things out into this good world God made. And we were made to joyfully receive those things that others have made and that God himself has made. And if you're going through a difficult time, which over the last two years, I imagine some of us have, it's easy to tell yourself that you can wait until it stops hurting, until you can enjoy something. But if you wait until it stops hurting before you let yourself have fun, you'll never have fun. We live in a meantime between the cross and the empty tomb and the second coming. We're waiting for something really wonderful and it's hard in the meantime. But fun is not a distraction from the pain. But fun is a declaration that there is something, something greater than the pain. So find something to celebrate. For through celebrations, you will find life. Fun is what you were made to have. Fun is what you were made to be. Thank you. Sorry. You did it again. Sorry. You yeah. did it again. Jacqueline, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, wow. All right. Well, I, I'm glad that was recorded. Uh, go back and watch that one again. Um, hey, we're, we're going to leave some time open right now oh, for tissue. Yeah. Thank you. See, um, I, yeah, I knew but we're going to leave happen. some time open. Thank same, you. same as we did yesterday for questions. And so if you have any questions about anything, a little Q and a about stuff that she said today, or if you remembered how to, to phrase what you were trying to say yesterday, yeah. um, I'm here. you could do that as well. So this is a Q and a time seal in the back. So one thing that um, I've always thought about was, uh, as a person who has ADHD for me, um, having a hobby is something that when I focus on something, I focus on something a lot. <laughs> Hyperfixation um, is great, 
my house is full of half gun projects. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. But anyway, um, uh, one thing that I've always uh, thought about and uh, have at some point struggled with was thinking about um, at what point does a interest that I'm super into become more of an, obs an unhealthy obsession mm -hmm. than something where I'm just, I'm just a nerd. Yeah. That's a very good question. I, th I think in order to answer that question, you have to take into cons your formula has to include the math of your, in of your entire life. It's not just a matter of, am I spending too much time on thing here? It's a matter of kind of zooming out and going, where is here maybe taking away from these other things? I play D&D &D for three hours, sometimes four, a night, every week. That's a lot of time. That's more time than I spend in church. Um, and so I think for one thing would be not just honing in on, is this too much? Am I too into this? But zooming back and going, are there places where this is taking away from other good and wonderful things that I need to keep in my life? And also having asking the hard question of, am I engaging with this as this is, this is, this is a me thing. I don't know if it's you thing as a form of, of self-medication. I, that's one of the reasons why I think I mentioned in our last session, I fasted from listening to stuff in the car because it listening to music or podcasts or the radio had become a way to shut my brain up because letting my brain go. Uh, it's like the song car radio by 21 pilots is I was listening to that in order to dampen how much pain I was mentally in. And so taking a moment to be like, when do I feel the impulse to, to engage in this? Is it when I'm anxious? Is it when I'm feeling pressured? Am I maybe medicating with this? I do that. Or about y'all. So that's, that'd be a stab at that answer. Back to the front, back to the front. <laughs> Uh, what would this look like in a church setting? Like how, mm. like, cause you talked about like giving fun and receiving fun. Like mm. what would a, a church that's doing this look like? Hmm. What would a church that's doing this look like? Or youth group. Yeah. It's very tempting when we find something as Christians, when we find something that is, that is good to think that it must necessarily come within the walls of the church in order to be done by the church. And some of the most, some of the like best like relationships with people who aren't really interested in Jesus right now, and some of the best like fellowship with other believers has come when I have the freedom to engage in these in this sort of like in playing D and D with or in watching movies with or in talking about books with people outside the walls of the church, and so it might sound strange, but I, I actually think that one of the best ways a church can facilitate this is to encourage its members to create space in their life, to engage in this kind of giving and receiving fun and enjoying good things with each other outside the walls of the church, as well as within. So that would be, that would be an answer. Got a question from the Twitch chat here. Hi, uh, this question's from Gabigan in the Twitch chat. Um, he'd like you to elaborate on how people can have fun in the meantime, if yeah. you could give examples, because yep. with most people's lives right now, that could be something we're terribly missing. Yeah. For for me and my husband, D&D uh, &D, D &D got us through COVID in a lot of ways. It's easy for us to say as Christians, well, yeah, Jesus got me through this hard time. And that is very true. 
but it's also okay to say, Jesus got me through this hard time by giving me a group of people to play D and D with every night. When COVID hit, we'd already been playing for about two years. And so we moved on to zoom. We rearranged how we had sessions. We bought, (laughs) we bought a new camera. We bought lights so that we could have the gaming table there. And we played on zoom every week. And so one of the best ways you can have fun in the meantime is even in the midst of really difficult times, choosing to carve out time in your schedule specifically to do fun things with people you love or even to do fun things with people you don't know yet so that you can learn to love them. And for us, it was in that case, it was finding ways to, uh, to engage in something we love together at a time where things were really difficult and in circumstances where we couldn't engage with that thing the way we would have preferred. So that's what I mean. I have a question. Okay. I got a mic. It's fine. I got you. Thanks. Um, so speaking about Sabbath, yes. this is something that legitimately speaking, my wife and I go through these cycles, these sabbatical cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you, Tell us some of the best practices for not just creating time for Sabbath, Mm -hmm. but sticking with Sabbath Mm -hmm. um, and making that a time that is actually restful. Okay. I'll tell you what's worked for me. I have a real hard time Sabbathing, and it's actually messed with my brain a lot to come across the idea that maybe maybe resting actually is a way that I reflect the image of God. Having that thought has been a, that's a major change perspective for me because I tended to think of God as a working God, as a creative God, doing, doing, doing. And the idea that just sitting back and resting was actually a way of reflecting his image was a new one to me. This might sound strange, but some of the best Sabbathing I had actually in the process of writing this when I was really writer's blocked about it happened when I chose to sit down and watch the whole first season of the Mandalorian over a period of a week. Cause I had several weeks where I was really writer's blocked on this and actually just taking time to sit down and do something I enjoyed without a lot of reflection as to how it was impacting me, just sitting back and having some ice cream. I love ice cream and watching something I enjoy just because I enjoyed it ended up becoming a strangely very rewarding Sabbathing practice of simply making time to do something I enjoyed just because I enjoyed it. I didn't, it didn't have to be hyper spiritual. I mean, it didn't, wasn't really spiritual at all. It's just, you know, it's just star Wars. Sorry. It's just star Wars is wonderful, obviously, <laughs> except when it's not wonderful, <laughs> but so that was actually a, a new way to Sabbath for me was taking, taking the perspective that maybe part of Sabbathing is just joyfully receiving something that someone else has made. And making that a part of your schedule it's is hard when when you're when you're living in the kind of spiritual empowerment that ursula k ursula k Guin describes is that helpful so you talked about uh giving fun and for someone like me an extreme extrovert that's pretty easy i like hosting DD. i like uh, you know all kinds of things but yeah. what about for an introvert for somebody mm. who struggles more on putting themselves out there mm. what would be some examples of giving fun that's what's great i actually would suggest you read i would suggest you read flow by uh Mihai. he wasn't a believer and so there are going to be points in that book where you're like hmm? that's okay you can still learn from him what was very interesting about how he describes flow and i'm calling giving fun 
is that you can experience flow in some surprisingly quiet ways. One of them, one of the groups that he studied were elderly folks in Japan who experienced flow doing meditation. Meditation can look very different, but it's definitely, it's something you do sitting quietly by yourself in your own mind. And that actually became a very rewarding experience for them. And so just because you're an introvert doesn't mean that you don't engage in that sort of pouring out into the world, giving fun. You don't have to be Florence Welch in order to have that kind of fun. I have it sitting alone at my computer writing. I have it sitting alone and just, oh no, that would be more receiving fun. But like I have it writing, which is a very lonely, can be a very lonely task, but that, you know, if that's what you're into, that's fine. And so I think the first thing I would say is don't assume that just because you're an introvert, that that means that giving fun is not for you. Giving fun is just about making something beautiful that you pour out into the world. The way Csikszentmihalyi describes it as it falls, it's the moment that falls between anxiety and boredom. When you have a challenge that is difficult enough, you're not bored, but not so difficult, you're not anxious. It's whenever your skills match up with the challenge perfectly. And that can happen when playing solitaire. That can happen when doing a puzzle. It's just the moment of feeling like I am working to accomplish something and I've got what it takes to accomplish it, but it's still challenging enough to be exciting. And that, yes, can happen engaging with people, doing very extroverted, exciting, performing on stage type stuff, but it also can happen very quietly on your own. It's still, I would say, it's still giving fun. It definitely is still flow per Csikszentmihalyi. I think they might text each other, Matt, and be like, hey, no, you on the other side of the room, you ask a question. Take him out. So um, growing up, I'm sure in a similar situation, like the churches that I grew up with in the 90s and stuff, very um, felt like unnerdy friendly, you know, yeah, like I couldn't really share, you know, I like playing video games, all that stuff. How So as you were coming up and having the career that you have now, like, how did you deal with like some of the pushback from the pushback, yeah. you know the organizations you probably had to yeah and all that? I, I will say I have been blessed. I I have been blessed to <clears throat> while I was in churches where there were folks in the church that I was in that were really worried that I was reading Harry Potter. My parents were very level-headed about a lot of that stuff and didn't have any problem letting me decide whether or not I wanted to read Harry Potter as the spirit led. That's another story you'll be told another time. Uh, ditto for when I worked at the International Mission Board. Now I work at a Southern Baptist seminary. I'm actually really grateful. I don't catch a lot of flack from my coworkers beyond just the sort of like, oh, that's so nerdy, sort of. They don't really mean anything by it. There's, But I haven't gotten any actual deep concern of like, you're doing a thing that's very dangerous to your soul. But when that has happened, one of the things that is that I have found helpful to the conversation, if you can, if you can have, if you can say this in a way that doesn't sound accusatory, which can be difficult for me, is that for reasons I'm not quite 100% clear on, nerd, nerd activities can have, and in many places still continue to be subjected to a level of moral scrutiny that other pastimes aren't. With stories like the one Den Rachel Den Hollander broke, I don't hear anyone saying we should drop sports entirely. When the sports industry did that to her and those other women, no one's saying we should stop doing sports. 
But everyone says, well, there was that one kid who was depressed that one time and he played D&D and his life didn't go so well. So no one should ever play D&D again ever. That's not logical. And so that is one of the things that I tend to bring into the conversation is like, hold up, hold up. Okay. Could, could you at least help me understand, talking to the person who's concerned about my soul, help me understand what is the moral ruler you're using here? Because it seems to be different links when you're doing different things. And sometimes that goes well, sometimes not so great. <laughs> but it's a valid point. And also, I think, honestly, the, the most helpful thing when I do get pushback, or in more cases, it's, it's loving concern, is to ask the question, is to get a clear picture of why do you object to this? What, what is it in Harry Potter that concerns you? Or what is it in D&D that concerns you? Because a lot of times I've been, they've been able to say, well, I'm worried about this, this, and this. And I'm able to be like, well, this never happens in D&D. There's not a scene where what you're describing ever happens in Harry Potter. Iron Man does at no point consult with the spirits of necromancers. And so it has been helpful to both, on the one hand, ask people, could you please, could you please talk to me about the moral rule we're using here? And at the same time, clear up misunderstandings about about their concerns because a lot of times it's built on stuff that isn't true i heard stuff about dnd as a kid that i look back on now i'm like that wasn't true that wasn't true but no i didn't know and sometimes people just don't know okay yeah uh, i think that's gonna do it J jacqueline thank you so much for that